Welcome to Health Conscious Podcast. This is Joseph Del Santos here and Jonathan Abbott. And we're going to talk to you guys today about medical devices and innovation. I first want to formally introduce Jonathan Abbott to uh, the podcast world. Um, so Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So I'm a Sloan student uh, with Joe uh, in the Cornell Program for Health Administration. And my primary focus is uh, obviously in healthcare. And today we have a really interesting topic on medical devices that I think you guys are going to find interesting. Um, so how about we get into the article? Yeah. Did you know that 32 million Americans have a medical device installed? Yes, I did. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, one in 10 people. Uh, and these, these devices can range from everything from artificial joints to pacemakers to defibrillators. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked uh, with... You know, when I was at uh, UCI, I worked on a few of these medical device trials that, uh, and they still haven't made the market yet, but they're they're well on their way. Another interesting thing is that uh, many of these medical devices don't have to go through regulatory processes to get onto market. Surprisingly, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think uh, they need to at least submit an equivalent device um, to something that's currently been approved and then uh, it can actually be used in the market. So that's a 510K form? Correct, yeah. Correct. Why don't you explain what a 510K is? Yeah, so it's basically an application that's filed by medical device companies um, that explain that a medical device that they have created is equivalent to um, something that's on the market uh, in, in terms of what it's being used for and its effectiveness. It's interesting, it's interesting. But wouldn't you say it's true that these medical devices, if it is equivalent to the same device, they can just go on market without any testing, even if it's a new device? Well, these 510Ks are temporary, so uh, I don't think that, you know, there, there are some checks for this, and there's reporting that the medical device companies have to do uh, if there's any um, kind of issues in terms of safety and whatnot. Hmm. Interesting. Well, luckily, we have an expert here with us today, uh, Dr. Joseph Reinhardt. He's a uh, doctor from UCI, UC Irvine, um, and he's going to deliver a really excellent talk about, um, about the future of the field. Yeah, he was actually my boss. Uh, he's a vice chair of research at UCI Health. Uh, he's also uh, an expert and resident at Applied Innovation, which is kind of their innovation entrepreneurship hub at UCI. Uh, and fun fact, he does nonprofit uh, work in South America every year. You know, he's a real giver to the community. He's a real great guy. And he's, we're delighted to have him on the show. And without further ado, here's Joseph Reinhardt, Jonathan Abbott, and myself. So now that you have this kind of buzz and support, um, what were the next steps that you kind of um, kind of experienced? Well, well, I mean, uh, you know, all the while we're we're continuing to plan studies. We're continuing to try to um, to show where we can the value of what we were doing. And we, you know, we did a couple of studies at um, at UCI. We had a couple of studies in Europe. Um, Maxine had some European partnerships that we started working with um, to continue um, doing work over in Europe. Um, 
And all the while, we were meeting with different companies and sort of talking with them. Um, we met with a European fluid pump manufacturer very early on, actually, um, and they provided some of the first fluid pumps that we did in our early work. And uh, we were, it was actually one of, the, one of the worst, you know, any company, you're going to have high days and low days, and it was probably one of the, one of the low days for us. Um, we flew over and, and met, with their, um, met with their executive board to talk about, you know, the potential for a partnership with them. And um, the meeting went well. They they, um, they talked to us for a little while, um, and then the CEO came in, um, asked if he could talk to the board for a few minutes. So um, so my team stepped out, and um, you know the, the CEO talked to the board for a little bit, and then he brought my team back in, and they basically said, uh, "Yeah, we're not interested. Thanks." <laughs> so you know we had spent all this time and money flying over there, and all, had built this relationship, and then it was just you know in the span of like thirty seconds, it was uh, that, that dream was crushed. So, um, but I think that's you know any, anybody that's, that's done a startup, you know you've got these ecstatic highs, and then you have these lows where you just get you just get stomped on, and you got to pick up and and, and carry on. Um, but that was kind of the way it went. We, we met with different companies. We kept trying to explore different options. We met with um, two or three companies right here in Southern California. We're, we're fortunate to be in Irvine where a lot of companies are housed. Um, and uh, kept talking to other companies in Europe and, and just trying to see where we were getting any traction. And interestingly enough, um, Edwards Life Sciences was um, right here, local Southern California. Um, we'd had a good working relationship with them in the past. And they'd, they and their, um, one of their vice presidents had actually come to one of our animal labs. Um, you know, we told them we were doing this work and they, they came to see what we were doing. And um, we had sort of maintained contact with them and they were ultimately the company that we, we had two or three different companies we were still kind of pushing with and trying to get interest from. And Edwards really became... Um, for some reason, they understood the, the sort of paradigm shift that we were trying to create and how in standardization and innovation, and it, it sort of fit in with some of the other projects that they had going on, and, and they were the ones that came back and really started talking with us in earnest about, hey, you know, we'd, we'd like to talk to you guys about partnering and making this a reality. Great, yeah. I, I'm really glad you brought up that uh, that story about meeting the, um, the European medical device company uh, because I think, you know, we're... Our listeners are listening to this story um, about your company. I think they'd be interested to hear your perspective on the broader industry. Where do you see the future of the medical device industry going? Um, do you see sort of medical devices representing uh, incremental changes as they come out, or are they going to be paradigm shifts with each new device? Um, and going along with that, do you think startups like yours are the best way to sort of drive innovation in the industry, or do you think it's really going to come out of the big medical device companies moving forward? Yeah, okay, two good questions. Um, so, I guess to answer your first question about um, where, you know, medical devices, incremental change versus paradigm shifting and um, disruptive innovation, that was the phrase I was looking for, disruptive innovation. Um, <laughs> Glad I can help. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the healthcare industry is in an interesting spot. You know, the European market's a little bit ahead of us in being being extremely cost sensitive, but the American market is shifting pretty rapidly to being cost sensitive with, you know, the, the pressure on healthcare right now um, to deliver better value, really, for, for, for the amount of money we're spending in this country. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting. I mean, there are incremental improvements, but I think with an incremental improvement, it's going to have to be cost effective. So we're we're past the point where you know 
providing a 5% improvement in some measure or outcome, if it's going to cost you double to do it, I, I don't think you're going to be able to do that anymore. Customers, i.e. the hospitals and healthcare systems, they're just not willing to pay more money for small improvements anymore. So what they're looking for is how to provide more value for the same or less money. Um, and I think that's where we, I think, bring value. I think that's the value proposition of what we're doing. And it's, it kind of comes back around to what I was saying before, is that with the closed-loop system, you're able to, one, provide consistent, high-quality, goal-directed therapy per protocol, but you're able to do it in a very standardized way. And, you know, part of, part of what we did is we, we looked at the variability in existing fluid management and, and um, you know, it's huge. There's an enormous amount of underlying variability in, in the amount of fluid patients get in the OR. So that's, that was really, you know, when we were thinking about how do you bring this to a hospital and sell this, actually the value proposition of the hospital is, look, um, you're gonna reduce the variability of fluid administration in the operating room. You're gonna, you're gonna reduce the high outliers and the low outliers which is where all the all the complications come from, you know, with with regards to at least fluid therapy itself. Um, and I think I think to go back to the original question, then you know, what where is the, the innovation going to come from? I think that's really what healthcare startups need to be looking at: is um, does this help reduce variability? Does this help improve outcomes? Um, and, and if so, you've got a product, but can you make it cost effective such that the, the incremental cost increase is, is going to be very marginal to none for the value that I'm going to, I'm going to bring to the table? If you can do that, then I think you've got a product. Um, I think that's the key thing. Yeah. yeah. If, you're going to, if you're going to improve things, obviously, if you're really going to change things um, substantially, then you're talking about a big improvement. And you may be able to justify a big cost increase. Um, but, but the cost increase really is going to have to be justified by substantial, some sort of substantial improvement in patient care um, in, in the present market. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- I think something uh, that's uh, key is you were talking about is uh, sort of providing value in the shift to value-based uh, services. Um, so I just wanted to dive in on how, how do you actually measure the value? Is there any sort of standardized uh, metric that you can use? Or what, what, what's the future oh, going to look like in right. that sense? I don't think there's any, I mean, I think every hospital has its own way of accounting for costs. Every healthcare system has its own way of accounting for costs. But, I mean, ultimately, ultimately there, there are two values in the system that really matter. Um, one is the patient-centered values, that is the outcomes. Um, quality of life, you know, is really, are you improving patient quality of life? Um, and then the second value from the healthcare system standpoint is cost. Um, and cost to them is very, very intricately tied to patient outcomes because mm-hmm. patients that have medical complications, have, by definition, have worse outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so the healthcare system is interested in reducing those complications, which um, in so doing, hopefully improves patient quality of life as well. Mm-hmm. But those are really the metrics you're looking at, is, is reducing costs to the health system um, and re- in improving the quality of life um, for the patients, which includes complications. Okay. Great. Great. Thank you. That was a great answer. I guess the requirements by the FDA 
and kind of the current administration, and do you think that guidances will be uh, more lax or more stringent for upcoming kind of uh, devices in terms of the innovation that they'll be doing to improve and have more value-based care? That's a good question, too. Um, yeah, regulatory stuff. You know, the, the, um, you know, if you're doing a healthcare startup, you've got to get help with regulatory. And we, we hired a healthcare consultant or a, a regulatory consultant very early on to help answer these questions because you're going to have all sorts of design considerations that have to have to go into building a device if it's going to ever have a prayer of getting through regulatory. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to your question, is it going to get more strict or more lapse? I, who knows? I mean, I, I don't know if we've seen a huge shift um, on the ground from the current administration. I imagine probably some people have. Um, for us, we've actually seen we've actually seen an opening at the FDA with regards to closed loop devices. Um, I think ten years ago, a device like ours wouldn't have stood a chance. It would have been really, really difficult. But there was a, a company called Cetasys that actually came through and, and got FDA approval for, um, I think in practice it was actually a semi-closed loop device, but, but effectively a form of automation for propofol. And they really, really had to fight a battle, uh, a long um, battle to, to, to prove safety. And I think the challenge for them, in fairness to the FDA, the challenge for them was that um, the FDA really I think it's struggling with how do you how do you show that a closed-loop device is safe? Um, you know, how do you show that some form of automation that you're going to attach to a patient isn't going to do harm to patients? Um, and I think what's happening now is that there's enough interest and enough ongoing development in closed-loop devices. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of people doing automation now. And if, if you look at the rest of the world, it's not, not difficult to understand why. I mean, Tesla and, and others are, are building autopilots into the cars we drive. And medicine is probably, you know, 15 or 20 years behind in terms of what automation is capable of. And I think now what's happening is medicine is catching up and the FDA is realizing, look, these, these devices can help. These devices can make things better. And maybe they're a way to solve some of this cost crisis that we're facing because of the the, the unjustified variability in um, in healthcare um, provision, and so I think what they're doing now is they're going out and they're they're really you know they, they had a, um, a conference last year the FDA actually had a conference and invited closed loop experts Maxine actually went to that um, to sort of talk about what do we see as the future of closed loop what do we see as as the the benefit what do we see as the risks and I think FDA is really making a, a sincere effort to understand these devices to understand how they should be regulated. Um, and really to help facilitate on their side bringing them to the market. So it, we ended up at a really interesting conflux of, of um, opportunity, I think, and that was that was part partially timing and partially um, by intent with us. But we we realized, you know, that we got lucky in a lot of ways with you know FDA opening up to this concept now really has helped us, and I think. Um, I think, you know, potentially seeing one of our devices at the bedside in, in the United States in the next, you know, 18 months or so is a reality, which is really cool for us. But again, it was made possible in part by the FDA um, really, really um, coming around to looking at these devices and, and opening up to the possibility of this. So, Great, thanks. Um, to yeah. shift a little bit, um, I guess, to what you're doing now. Um, I know that you're at Applied Innovation right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're doing there? Sure. Um, I, I'm not. Well, 
so I guess I'm involved a little bit with applied innovation through, um, as I mentioned earlier, UCI has invested an enormous amount of time and money and resource and effort into um, developing UCI entrepreneurs. And so part of what they've done is they've created this, at, at the UCI Applied Innovation, which is sort of the, the um, their development and IP um, 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 they've created this huge space for UCI entrepreneurs um, that, you know, it houses office space, it houses lab space, and in addition, they've brought in um, what they call their experts in residence um, that are domain experts in stuff like, you know, IP and regulatory and, and startups and financing and all these other things. And they've also brought in angel investment groups, venture capital groups. They've brought in um, contract manufacturing folks. And what they're really trying to do is put everybody in the same space um, to create, you know, a... a uh, an ecosystem where where getting access to expert help is a possibility. Um, so I'm involved in two ways, I guess. One, I'm involved with their their expert and resident program, just trying to help other startups navigate this. You know, I've, I've got a little bit of experience with this now, but um, but I, I really enjoy doing this kind of thing. I think it's a you know, you spend your life training to be a physician, and you study medicine, and, and you um, study biology and all this stuff. And so so to do this startup, it was just it was, it was fun. I mean, it was a really fun expression of another sort of type of creativity. So I enjoy doing it, and I, and, I, and I like being involved on that side. And then one of the, the very first investors in our company, we, we didn't really talk about the financial raise and all that, but um, we did a friends and family raise where, um, you know, we brought in money from, from people basically they were willing to give it to us at that point. Um, and, um, but part of the contingency with, with that was that we go out and we find at least a couple of people that know what the heck they're doing. And one of the very first people that we, we brought in um, was a guy who had a lot of experience with, um, with small startups. And, um, and he, really, he was really my mentor in terms of how to build and operate a startup company, how to, how to get all the basics done. So when he was, um, John was his name, so when John later was um, asked to help put together basically an angel fund designed to invest in UCI startups, he asked me if I would be willing to um, sit on the investment committee of that fund to help screen um, healthcare-based startups. And so that was also, I mean, talk about an amazing opportunity. So for me, you know, it was an opportunity to sit on the other side and see these companies that were coming through um, with with ideas for healthcare related devices and pitching and trying to raise money and to see it, to sit on this committee and see what all of these guys with, you know, decades of experience were looking at to see how they were evaluating these companies, to see how they were evaluating the products, the market, the, the personnel, which is a huge part of it. Um, and so that's been a really huge opportunity um, for me to sort of learn more about the process and hopefully, you know, the next time, the next startup that comes down the road here, we'll have a little bit more experience and a little bit deeper understanding of, um, of what it takes and maybe what the, the, um, what the pathways are. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the past, like four or five years, mm -hmm. kind of these types of entrepreneurship kind of affiliations with, uh, universities been popping up. To wrap it up, what do you see, I guess, coming along in, in terms of like medical technology in the future? Um, you know, what what do you think is going to be, you know, the next innovation, next kind of iteration to improve care? Well, I, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I think what we're seeing in healthcare is the same that we're seeing um, across 
across the board, and that is um, an increasing an increasing amount of automation and an increasing amount of sort of machine dependence. Um, I'll give you an example. So um, you guys, uh, most people are aware of IBM's um, uh, machine learning efforts and, you know, when they competed on Jeopardy with Watson, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, the, the amazing thing about Watson wasn't necessarily its, um, its data processing capabilities or anything. What was amazing about Watson was its natural language comprehension capabilities. And that was what was amazing about it was that it didn't need any special prompting. It could listen to Alex Trebek's question in spoken English and translate that question into meaning. It could it could understand what the information being sought was. So okay, so that's sort of in the background there. So um, a healthcare insurer named WellPoint has you know made news, I don't know, this is probably three or four years ago now, made news for, for um, licensing Watson to go back and go through all of their medical charts to process the human written notes and to to extract the meaning from the human written notes. Um, and they were going to ultimately use that information to help make healthcare insurance decisions. Well, when you have a healthcare insurer that's starting to make decisions based on machine learning and machine algorithms, um, you're seeing, you know, that's where the money comes from. That's, that's one of the payment. Um, that's where healthcare systems get paid from. Um, I think it's only going to be a matter of time until you start to see the provision of healthcare becoming, the expectation becoming increasing dependence and, and ex- the expectation will be that, um, um, you know, computer assistance, computer algorithms are doing that. And if you look at things like radiology, if you look at things like diagnostics, um, there are already plenty of published demonstrations that machines can read a lot of this stuff better than humans can. Um, because again, it comes back to that, they don't miss detail, they don't faults for attention, um, they're unbiased, they're not perfect, there, there are a lot of things that they're terrible at, and, um, and it's going to be a long time before they're, um, they're just not for clinical work, but I think that's the direction it's going to go. Um, I really think that the next 10 to 20 years of healthcare in this country are going to see increasing, um, increasing utilization of, um, of AI in healthcare practice. For diagnostics first, it'll start with, you know, diagnosis and detection of disease. Um, but from there, I expect that probably, you know, the longer, the longer time frames we're going to see increasing, not just diagnostics, but interventions too. Um, you know, recommendations for treatment, that kind of thing. So that was a great conversation with uh, Dr. Reinhardt, don't you think, Joe? Yeah, definitely. I think it was pretty fun. Uh, I want to give a shout out to all my old coworkers at UCI Health. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Supin Shaw. Uh, he's our blogger. You can check out his blog on this episode at healthconsciouspodcast.wordpress.com. Check it out. And you can also listen to us on iTunes. Have a great next couple of weeks.